A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today we are beginning Dark Age, the fifth book in the Red Rising saga. We are going to be reading through chapter five. So from the beginning prologue sovereign speech through chapter five. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Dude, I am just in such a good mood. This whole week has been fucking awesome, but today we're finally starting the fifth book in the series. And I'm fucking loving it already. Just, ah, I'm so excited. I'm really excited. So we're we're gonna we're gonna geek out over it a little bit, dude. I've been trying to. I mean, not trying. I've been anticipating getting here since we started this. So all of this labor that we've been going through to go through the series methodically and talk about all these things has really been to land at this culminating moment. So far as we're all aware, right? There will be a sixth book. It's not out yet. It's not even announced. Um, but this has always been kind of the aim was to get you through this entire series, to get to this book, to talk, talk through and, and put you where I am right now. And, uh, it's so cool to be here. Like that's, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. Very, very excited. Uh, so today, as you guys all know, is our first episode covering dark age by Pierce Brown. And we are going to tackle the prologue through chapter five. But before we do that, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what are you having today? Well, if any of you guys listen to the uh, the podcast that we did with Hill Reaper, we did that two days ago. And for that, I bought a bottle of absinthe. So today I made a cocktail with absinthe. And it turns out most cocktails with absinthe, it's like a quarter teaspoon that you use as a rinse on the glass. So, you know, I found one that made sense thematically. I it, It's a Corpse Survivor number two, but... For this show, I am rebranding it as The Necromancer. It is one part Cointreau, one part Sweet Vermouth, one part Lemon Juice, an Absinthe Rinse, and a Lemon Twist to Garnish. So, nice. I actually I added a little splash of, of Absinthe into the shaker with the other three liquids. Um, mm-hmm. But I did the rinse as well for the aromatics. And it is really fucking good. I, I'm... I think I like absinthe, man. I think I hmm. do. Interesting. But, but if it's done right, not out of a fucking measuring cup with too little sugar. <laughs> um, you, for my beer follow-up, you sent me a, another package mm-hmm. um, because they don't deliver to you. So you just put my address in instead and I'm drinking your beer. Sure. So <laughs> um, I've got a cilantro lime ale from west fax brewing company which is out of lakewood colorado it's really refreshing the cilantro and the lime are both really subtle i i venture as to say i really don't pick up anything as far as the cilantro goes but it as just a straight up porch drinker like light yet flavorful uh almost it almost tastes like a lager it's um kind of emulating a lager Mexican style lager 
um, it's re- it's really really solid. I'm enjoying it. So nice. Sounds yeah. tasty. What have you got? I am drinking a modified version of the cocktail that I actually had on the episode with Hail Reaper. I wanted to toy around with it a little bit more with some of the ingredients that I had, kind of per our discussion. And so we go from Blue Shoes, which is what I'm ending up naming the other cocktail, to Blood Red. Uh, and so this is that modification on that. So it's very similar. It's two ounces of gin, three quarter uh, ounce smoked honey, elderflower tonic to top, you know, typically about four ounces and uh, cherry syrup to give it kind of that red, red taste. Not like a fake artificial syrup, but actual not. It's not even concentrated. It's like cherry juice. Very thick. Yeah very syrupy it is delicious uh i think it's the like hint of elderflower on the back that i'm really liking or the hint of the smoked honey i can't tell which of those three really interesting weird flavorful things it is but oh my gosh it tastes like cashmere in my mouth (laughs) i don't i don't know if that's a good thing well (laughs) i guess i don't know either (laughs) the more that i think about it do i know (laughs) i feel like cashmere like if you stick a cashmere sweater in your mouth it's just fuzzy and gross (laughs) well i meant that it kind of tastes fuzzy in my mouth which is good (laughs) like it tastes it tastes like it's got an interesting texture fuzzy isn't probably the right word or choice but (laughs) i don't know (laughs) you're not selling this crossland (laughs) yeah no clearly i'm not clearly i'm not maybe it's more like silk or velvet maybe that's more what i mean that's fair there we go yeah yeah. To follow that up, I'm having a uh, beer here called Eight Minute Song made by Wilmington Brewing Company. Talk about them a lot. Uh, they make my favorite beers in the area, so I talk about them a lot for that reason. But it is a uh, New England style IPA. It is fantastic. It is double dry hopped. It has notes of like tangerine and melon and very, very not not. I wouldn't call it mellow entirely, but it is. It's not intenser in your face. It's delicious. This is one of my favorite beers that I've had in a while. Nice. Yeah, it's crazy. I just opened it and took a sip as we were as you were talking, and I'm gonna keep drinking it. I'm staring at my cocktail and I'm like, do I want that more than I want this right now? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. With that, we uh, we'd normally talk about predictions. But obviously, we're starting a new book. So, and none of the predictions from the last book really came to. Uh, came to pass so we don't have any predictions to talk about yep womp 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 (laughs) so with that let's uh let's get into the chapters so our breakdown begins with the (laughs) pre-prologue like uh, the the speech prologue to the prologue the prologue to the prologue uh and I think that this is an incredible opening to the novel it's it's fascinating as it's basically a monologue almost given in third person um from like obviously like witnessing virginia's perspective and only at the very end does it feel like maybe we're in virginia's pov a little bit as she in italic starts to talk about um darrow and him coming home and whatnot so i i think that it's brilliantly written um a speech from mustang condemning the actions of the many factions of whom doubted in darrow and also sending him her love and support to the war on Mercury. I think one of the coolest things about this is it's two months in the future compared to where we start the next prologue and the rest of the book. So that makes it a really kind of compelling 
thing to reference later on as a little bit of time has passed in the battle ahead uh, just to see how it all lines up and what's going on and I, I'm sure we'll learn I'm, I'm sure that'll unfold on its own organically but it'd be kind of cool to cheat a little bit and see what she's thinking you know mm-hmm yeah to kind of get a get an idea or perception of where she's at in the timeline versus where he's at and what's actually, you know, going on. This is a very, in a way, um, this sort of framing is very reminiscent of God. Maybe it's just front of mind because I I rewatched it. That's probably why it is. But in the way that both breaking bad and better call Saul will start an episode. Jesus Christ. He doesn't stop talking about fucking better call Saul. Every goddamn day. God, it's always something that I say with you, isn't it? It doesn't matter if it's... I I switch from Stephen King... Hack. ...to Better Call Saul. Garbage. Breaking Bad, which... Derivative. (laughs) Fuck. Oh, my God. Anyway, like, the the idea of, like, jumping that far ahead in the story um, and kind of giving... In in medias res moment, yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna let me just walk away from that one. Um, <laughs> the the sort of in medias res speech here is, I, I think, fantastic and very interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, it should be. And I, if it's not abundantly clear, I'm completely just giving you shit. Like, I I love I love Better Call Saul. I love Breaking Bad. I haven't read much Stephen King, so I'm gonna keep calling him a hack until I do. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but I can't because you're holding them, you're holding them hostage for me. I've this read is one this book is by Stephen King. You haven't even read a book. You've read a short story. It was a short story, story that nothing happened in. <laughs> it's just an old man and his dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so until I know otherwise, that's what I know of Stephen King. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. With that, we move into our prologue, which is Darrow, Blood Red. As stated, it, it takes place two months earlier. Fantastic idea, fantastic cut. And it, it's just, it's a great way, it's a great way to start off the story. Also, it's the namesake of my cocktail, of course. And it's repeated as this sort of way that the soldiers get in, in combat, which I find to be a very interesting kind of concept, going Blood Red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I I was curious about all of the colors and like the choice of color. Is it just kind of chosen on, on a whim, like at the mood? And, what do you mean? The, where, where they're asking like, what color is it going to be today? Like, I would think there'd be something a little bit more. Or is that later? Those are, those are all referential. So that actually is in this section. But the, uh, like, Julia jade is a color because they're green the purple Mm -hmm. of the minotaur because the minotaur wears purple um they're they're all specific call outs to to different armies right i I got that it was just why why is he being offered those colors and would he ever actually choose them or was it just more for the dramatic effect of him being able to say blood red i think it was it would partially be to distract from who's actually doing this operation a little bit to maybe sow in some confusion. And then Darrow is, instead of sowing confusion, choosing to be direct and okay. be 
this other force. I see where you're coming from, though. Like, why give him the options? And he's like, fuck that. This isn't about stealth anymore. Iron Gold is about stealth. This is about violence. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's that's my and read on it. Boy, howdy, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's violent. So we haven't seen kick- much. We haven't seen any actual violence yet, have we? In this section? No. Yeah, yeah, in this section. Yeah, we we see violence. What did we see so far? Uh, are the like fight scene where they're like oh, jumping yeah. up and down yep. between the the yep. layers and switching gravity and Tungless is the giant rifle and or the mm, not the rifle yep. but a Gatling cannon off of a fucking ship. Like yeah. Jesus. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I was thinking like I focused a lot today. I've been focused a lot on the last couple chapters, which has not been. It's been preparing for violence, but he has a violent attitude about him. Yeah, we, we start off with a bang here. Uh, I also like just the way that this book opens, right? This is the last laugh of the Ash Lord and the debut of his heir. And as we've stated, it is a violent debut. She has annihilated the White Fleet in the three weeks that we've been missing since since Iron Gold uh, under the command of Orion and left all the husks floating in this graveyard of ships above Mercury, Darrow's in the ship, the Necromancer. And it is just a strong visual opening and opening as well to a new phase of the war it's fucking brutal but um there's the the idea of a floating ship graveyard i it never crossed my mind was super cool and super intimidating you know yeah yeah and to like turn it into the minefield that it is and like cutting through like blowing apart the ships to make their run at the ship that's passing so that they can steal like all of it all of it is just awesome it's fantastic mm-hmm. yeah uh we we also get moments in here defining kind of the howler lieutenants that we got to meet in the last book we but with like far fiercer detail what do you make of darrow's descriptions of both alexander and thraxa and maybe even a little bit of call away i feel like we got more call away in the last book actually than even i thought um mm-hmm. but what do you think so i i think the the coolest thing for me is one, it kind of sets the tone of the book, but two, it also shows their actual progression and their actual growth very quickly. The entire previous book, they seemed kind of like kids and not Thraxa necessarily, but Alexander specifically seemed kind of like a, a student more than anything else. And here he is described as an actual terrifying fighter and leader and force to be reckoned with. Yeah. I mean, besides Severo, his best blade right later is, is the way that he's described. Yeah. And I think that that's a huge deal. And then also Thraxa is made to be an intimidating warrior. Like it is, she is fucking gnarly the the wee lass and her whole thing of with like talking to Pax I think at one point or it's referenced in memory of course talking to Pax and being like I I follow your dad because the people that I want to kill want to kill your dad or something something close to that yeah. and she's like it's a really easy way uh, to get him <laughs> yeah what was it I'm sure well I I don't know if you have it written down but it was a really I, good quote I don't I don't there are just so many really good quotes right off the bat that I only did a couple <laughs> yeah it, well, um, it, it, it was like she i like killing bad people and with your dad around there's no like there's no shortage of them or something like that 
Yeah, I like here it is. I like to kill people I don't like, and your daddy brings them like flies. That's it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. That's there uh, we go. It's perfect, because you can imagine her saying that to the to the little kid. It's mm-hmm. woof. Yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty great. So we're gonna talk about this man quite a bit throughout this section because he's he's referenced consistently, but Atlas Out Raw was only mentioned in whispers before this book, and he enters in here as the fear knight under Atlantia Atlantia? Atal do, do you remember how it said from the um, audiobook? So I, I was listening to the audiobook. I think yep. I think they call it I think they call her Atalant Atalantia? Atalantia? Atalantia sounds good. Atalantia? As long as Atalantia. I think I go back and forth, honestly, or I just I, misremember it. I know. That's my problem, too. I, just I, always, to, you know. I always say Atalantia in my head, though. Yeah, that's also how I say it in my head when I'm reading it. So if we are wrong in our pronunciation, I don't know, call us out for it, but we're probably not going to change. So, Well, sorry. you can let us know, and maybe I'll consider the if fact you, that I'm wrong. If you have a compelling reason why... I will follow it. But until then, no, I'm going to mm-hmm. call it how I, how I feel like it should be said. I, I absolutely, I mean, gee, Jesus, he is described as, you know, a known impaler, brutal commander of the Gorgon Legion, and just a terrifying prospect to fight that even Darrow is afraid of. Yeah. But he was also afraid of Apollonius. He was afraid of a lot of people. That didn't pose a whole lot of a th- of a threat. I th- I think Apple still definitely poses a threat, but well, fair point. Yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, but that's, way to, that's way to shoot my point in the dick. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in general, he seems like kind of a big problem at the moment, and they're gonna have to deal with him somehow. Yeah, yeah, I think I think they are. I think it's. Interesting. Unfortunate, perhaps. Darrow is violent right off the bat. And and by violence, I, I'm not necessarily referring to his what what he does to people in this section, but he comes off as this hostile force, this sort of hot off the press, hot off the iron, forged steel right off the anvil, anger ever since the end of Iron Gold, since that very angry ending to Iron Gold. And there's no shock of that, of course, especially seeing what had happened to his fleet and all of those different components. I mean, it is a wonder that he isn't angrier, you know? I, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's Slave 2, they call my friend. Those motherfuckers. And it's just, it's so... Oh, my God. Yeah. This, this is the Darrow slash the reaper that i'm really excited to see like let there's obviously a lot of sadness and lamenting from darrow going forward it, it bounces back and forth between violence and lament but there's more rage and there's there's more and more rage and it's more fiery and i i'm so here for it i'm so excited yeah it's getting explosive With, without a doubt without a doubt also, is this the most F-bombs that have been dropped this early in a book so far? Without a doubt. There's so many F-bombs in the first, like, four pages. <laughs> there's there's a lot. 
in the spit tube, I think this is an interesting kind of point to jump into. Darrow's thoughts return as they always do to his family. He spends these moments reflecting. We've kind of come to realize over the course of the series, every time before battle, he goes into this contemplative meditation, this sort of quiet before the storm moment. And I actually wanted to read almost all of this one because I think it is some of the best writing from Darrow's perspective in the entire series so far. Um, So, cursed to live to kill is this who i will always be is this the life i crave to rise before the sun to smile at the cock and fart jokes of killers as they grow younger and i grow older to sleep under tanks in the ruins of cities amongst the corpses i no longer believe in the veil i am the walking dead woe to those who cross my shadow i miss the promise of life the smell of rain the murmur of waves on the shore the sound of a full house it is a life i have rented but never owned I have stolen pieces of him and his mother, which I hold for ransom, promising one day to return. I know that is a lie. Mercury will be my end. And to me, that is fucking brilliant and painful to see Dara really put into words something we've been talking about for weeks now on the show. We talked about it with Hale, or with Hale Reaper even, but he's fully aware of the suffering he is causing his own family. He is. And for me, I I really don't know if that makes it better or worse. There is obviously this overwhelming sense of duty that seems to come before his family from the outside looking in. But simultaneously, it's that duty that is hopefully going to save his family and everyone else from a pretty dark fate. So it, it, he it, he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place as far as his decision-making goes. I'm sympathizing with him at this moment, I know. <laughs> but I, I don't necessarily think he is strictly... Um, strictly ignoring his duties as a father by going forward with this war. I think it's unfortunate that they're in conflict with one another, but I think this duty is ultimately going to serve his family. I I, I think you're right, and I think that gets to a point that we were talking about with Hale Reaper, is that ultimately this does serve his family. Like, he is doing work to save his family in the long run, um, not preserve it in, in the short term. Right. He's so. he's almost sacrificing his own place within that family in order to save it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. He's the he's a traveling salesman of a father, you know? Yeah. Just selling ice cream machines. And blood. And blood. <laughs> so the moment where Daryl launches out of his tube is just fantastic it just highlights i think how good of a writer that pierce has become over the course of the series you know the first time we ever sit in a spit tube from darrow's perspective is all the way back in golden sun and it's a fantastic moment it's an incredible build of of a moment but here he executes the whole scene from the moment that he launches out in just such a fantastic short punchy way that creates this this visual drama that I just, I need to see, I need to see this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's exhilarating. Just, just reading it. It's so electric. It's just so, so well done. 
So well done. All of these yeah. moments that he writes as far as like the, uh, the spit tube, spit tube launchings. But this one specifically is really fucking well done with, without a doubt. And, and kind of the, the rage as he's sitting there in the tube flying through the air, he's, he's thinking even more. Atalantia thought she could steal my Imperator, that her fear knight could keep my friend as a toy for torture, that I would simply run back to Luna and let my men die, that she could steal my son and there would be no consequences. Well, here I am, you deviant bitch. Here I bloody am, the motherfucking consequence. Oh, oh <laughs> dude. The motherfucking consequence always sticks in my head. And this is just, again, for a fucking prologue, this is just genius. It's stupid. I love it. I, I'm i going to venture out and guess that that line is pretty frequently used amongst the community. I actually, I mean, I think that it's quoted enough and it's a respected quote, of course. Uh, but I don't think that it's used widely just because of the context you know like it's i mean i think it's it's an accurate quote it's a real portrayal but to just like type out the motherfucking consequence (laughs) it's like a i I don't know but it's here i bloody am the motherfucking consequence yeah i feel like that should be it should be used more often (laughs) if it's not i love it i i I absolutely adore it yeah me too the the combat for the rest of this section is just absolutely manic flipping between the ceilings tongueless firing a giant ship cannon holding it and like just melting people cutting the various gorgons in half and the the whole fight in the hall between the olympics of the of the society and ajax and oh my gosh the death of tongueless it's just what in the hell man how did he pack all this in so just what a fucking opener poor tongueless (laughs) who's who's gonna watch the warden's dog now (laughs) that dude's just alone he's been stolen and then abandoned that's so sad and have some severe separation anxiety it's gonna be a bastard to live with (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're saying this because of cosmo yeah 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 that's that's fair i understand yeah, yeah I, yep exactly that <laughs> and you know i i can't i can't let this remark go un, unknown because everyone else in the podcast knew that it was it was a lie but when you asked the question about tongue list <laughs> Reaper, everyone had to sit there and bite their tongues that they have and they like, do have try tongues. to try to answer that question within reason and i think we all did a really good job without trying to like paint the future of the character and be really obvious about it we were all trying to talk about his place in iron gold <laughs> yeah so yeah yep yeah. he died in the prologue <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't prolific enough in the book to be remembered by half the crew on the last podcast throughout the story of Iron Gold, and then he died in the prologue of the next book. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. It was it was pretty funny. Yep. Oh man. It was it was so I, I read that and I'm like, fuck. All right. Well, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I was I was like, I know that this is coming really soon. 
It's like, you still got to take it seriously. So everyone else in that podcast had to do what I do and lie to your face. <laughs> they did a great job of it. <laughs> yeah, we, I think we all pulled it off. So, But also, like, I go into that sort of scenario knowing that there are things about characters that I am not privileged to. Mm-hmm. So I, I understand when people... I can I can see when people are kind of beating around the bush. You specifically. Most of the time you do a pretty good job, but sometimes you're just like, I'm just not going to answer that. And you know uh-huh. why. But fuck you, I'm not telling you anything. So. Mm-hmm. Right, right. You can, you can sit and speculate on your own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with that, we move into the actual book itself. Part one, Mischief. And before we actually move past the prologue, I just want to say one thing. I didn't know that there was a map in the very front of this book initially. The map is very helpful for understanding where all the various cities are on Mercury. I highly recommend checking it out, looking at it. If you don't have a book, I recommend searching for the Mercury map. There's one officially drawn up. Really easy to keep track of where all these cities are that they're moving between and kind of get a picture of everything. I have gotten very used to skipping the uh everything everything that's not text because of was it the second book golden sun i think it was mm-hmm. was it morning star where victra was alive victor yeah was it, was, one of the characters. it was morning star right it was morning star mm-hmm. yeah, so i haven't been but this is a cool this is a cool map yeah just don't read the uh dramatis persona the what dramatis persona it's like the oh, glossary yeah. of characters yeah, the thing that spoiled me last time. Correct. It also, this is the book that has incorrect information in it. Oh, that's funny. Which is even, yeah, we, we oh, can talk about really it at the funny. end. But Did yeah, you do that on purpose, or is it No, it, it was a plot point that got cut. Ah. Which, so it's it's like some kind of weird old canon that only exists in the, <laughs> in the character <laughs> glossary of first editions. Do I have a first edition? You should. I don't, we, we shouldn't talk about it though, because it's not a good, you shouldn't read it. We'll talk about it All later. Right. Well, we'll talk about it later. I will we'll for talk sure remember. Book. Yeah, 14 episodes. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you guys in three, three months. months. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So the poem, though, that opens up this part, part one, Mischief, it is uh, Metamorphoses by Ovid. Metamorphoses is a well-noted piece of literature documenting kind of a, a, a myth of creation all the way through the kind of deification of Julius Caesar. Uh, makes it kind of Greco, of course, in, in sort of origin point Greco-Roman. I, I think that the last part is really, really important. And I think that it's a fantastic choice by Pierce because I think think that it allows for us to really understand what we've been seeing and watching as we've gone through the story to this point, the sort of transformation and mythologicalization of our hero, our, our protagonist, Darrow, and how in many ways, and, and how, how in many ways, and they could and maybe should be viewed analogously, Darrow and Julius Caesar, um, and, and how they've kind of been portrayed in these ways of, of kind of attaining power and whatnot. But I think it also points maybe to Lysander as well. What do you think? So I, I think it very clearly mostly is pointed towards Darrow, but a lot of it does apply to Lysander. And if that's kind of a, a trolley line to follow, 
it has a lot of implications about what we're going to see for him about references to ages past and the loss of faith and trust just to see if that falls in line with him too. So it's either strictly about Darrow or it's kind of a cool foreshadowing for Lysander. Interesting. I like that. It's a, it's a good read. All right. With that, we actually move into the book. Finally, chapter one, Darrow till the veil. So, Right off the bat, Darrow again paints this horrifying picture of Atlas Ra, one that doesn't kill his forces but maims them, his 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 enemies, excuse me, but maims them to spread fear. What do you picture meeting him will be like? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's going to be violent. It, the, that's all I can really guess at the moment, but really that's what I guessed when it was when this po- question was posed about Apollonius. So, I don't know what to think because he, his interaction was completely civil, except for him squeezing the eyeballs out of the warden, but mostly civil. <laughs> like any, anyone would do that, right? Like <laughs> heat of the moment. Like I can't blame him. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I casually squeeze out some eyeballs on a Tuesday, you know. Like it's, it's fine. It's what you do, like. Oh, I'm so mad I could squeeze out his eyeballs. <laughs> and then you yeah. do, and then you're like, all right, let's go get kimchi or something. <laughs> That's I gross. don't know why kimchi. <laughs> Kimchi's just, it's oddly specific. It's delicious. Kimchi's yeah. delicious. Right. I want kimchi now. Kimchi or sauerkraut? Uh, kimchi every time. Okay. Just curious. All right. Yeah. There, it, there's I, more spice to it? Yeah, more flavor, and it covers up the just sour part. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Where it blends uh, with the sour. It balances. It's much more balanced than sauerkraut. I, I Let's think discuss that... the positives and negatives of sauerkraut and kimchi. <laughs> I am very intentionally not... waiting until you start talking. <laughs> this is not the random show. <laughs> Darrow, I, I, I really like... The sort of uh, myth that's built around Atlas in this section, right? We we never directly see the man. We only hear about him and his violence. We do see some of his legions. We do see uh, Ajax. We we see a number of different agents of the man, but we don't see he himself. So, I mean, all all told, it's it, it oof. He's he's a dude, man. He's a dude, man. He's a dude. Yeah. I I mean, and and this is maybe even a later revelation too, but when we find out that like Bellafron is his child, of course, it it makes that all that much more intense and mm. sort of the the mixing of the the raw and the grimace bloodline to make Ajax this sort of monster. I mean, woof, woof, dude is I mean, probably not a good dad. Maybe better than Darrow. That's I mean, okay, fair point. <laughs> Uh, but then we get the conversation after all of this sort of talk of violence and all these different things, we kind of go back low to the ground and we have a conversation with Dago. Uh, and it's a conversation with a character from the very beginning of this journey before Darrow, our legend, was born. What do you make of their their talk, their conversation? I think it really humanizes Darrow in the moment and gives him a brief relief from what's happening around him. Um, just kind of gets him 
to remember where all this was born from. It grounds him seemingly at least, at least momentarily it, it grounds him in the, uh, uh, the purpose, the purpose of this war or the reason for this war. So it, it was a really cool sort of conversation to jump into. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it, it's really fantastic, especially the components around Lycos and the dirt that he gives Darrow and kind of the memories and the idea that, you know, at the end of this, we're going to go get a drink. He still does his old thing that he used to bully Darrow for, you know, blowing smoke in his face kind of for good old times. And, you know, if anyone else did that, Darrow would probably decapitate them. But because Dago, it's some for some reason. OK, it's mm-hmm. it's really oh, it's a really fascinating inflection point in the story to include this character that was that was from the very beginning yeah there there is the he smokes his cigarettes with his his pinky and ring finger Mm -hmm. how the fuck do you do that that seems so uncomfortable pinky and ring finger that's not that bad like where where's your fingers go your other three fingers like are they poking into your face are they covering your eye like what position is your hand in upright or like to the side? Yeah. It mostly seems dumb. It mostly seems really fucking dumb. Yeah. Unless he does it backwards for some reason, but even that seems worse. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> good point. Dago's blind. So there's that. <laughs> uh, oh, that's a good point. That actually works out then. You can just kind of rest enough. his other fingers on his nose. Yeah. That is probably actually what it is. Keep the heat away. Interesting. After Darrow walks away from Dago, though, he begins to kind of generalize about the war that is around them. I'd point you to the map, like I said, if you haven't checked or seen, if you guys haven't looked at it. But as Darrow describes the instruments of war, the cadence, Gilrossi's is mounted around Heliopolis, the waste of the Ladon, the impaling stakes, the war machines, the dreaded keening of a Spider-Man's activation, all of them kind of accumulate in this exemplification of the real war we find ourselves submersed in now. What do you think of this change in pace of like moving to the front of the battle as opposed to being above it or kind of locked in space? I think it'll make for some really, really compelling action scenes, which I know and you know, we've talked about a lot on this show that Pierce is just fucking masterful at those sort of scenes. Um, For... The first, no, not the first, for one of many times I'm going to say this, I am super fucking pumped for this story, for this book. Yeah. Just based on based on this entire first section, everything about it, I am so excited. It's, it's so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't help but agree with you. I think that it would make for some very compelling action scenes i think it would also make for a very it's a very great way to kind of set the world and universe and you can definitely see a tv show episode kind of starting with these different cuts of the cannons being lifted up and i i think that this is actually something that star wars in general does really well is when characters walk 
and talk through different set pieces as the rebel forces or the empire are setting up their weapons and kind of the humdrum of the people around them. This feels very similar in sort of description. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of imagine everyone doing their part, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we move from that to Orion and Orion is broken to, to put it lightly. I think after that her encounter very lightly, <laughs> yeah he said it looks like she's been eaten (laughs) like her face has been eaten it's yeah i did boo Ugh. yeah it hurts for her Uh, to to put it lightly after her encounter with atlas and even her existence as a commander in the fleet she feels kind of like this broken entity what do you make of her sort of jaded, angry exterior after that experience? And do you think that she's right accusing Darrow of wasting neurons on regret and his choices? I think it makes total sense for her character and for, what would you call it, her her color? Just as a blue regarding yeah, blue. logic over everything. Do they even have the like capability of thinking outside of of logical terms. I guess they do, but they don't, they don't cross over that very often. Um, but it's, it's sensical to not waste time wondering what could have been if other choices had been made. Um, putting that, that focus to use on, uh, how to get out of whatever situation you've been put yourself into makes more sense. And beyond that, this is kind of how she's coping what she's been going through. So far be it from me to be the one that tells her she's wrong in that jaded attitude, you know? Yeah. It's <sighs> you're, you're right. And I, I think especially when you consider what she's, what she's been through is when it really starts to color it in that way. And like, like you said, I mean, that's really what kind of gives it away. It also tells you how to the, the extent of, of violent and brutal and torturous behavior Atlas Al raw will go to just to kind of toy around with someone and ruin them. It's, I, I we, the Jackal was a vile character Atlas is starting out on a pretty good foot to take him from that throne. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's he's outward about it. I guess it's the difference is the jackal was kind of secretive about about his sort of things and oh, oh my gosh, Atlas is just set up to be this monster. Yeah. Yeah, he is. So guys, super fucking cool. <laughs> it's it's cool and terrifying. <laughs> Yeah. So Orion's words really kind of jar Darrow and he reflects on Virginia as as he kind of like reflects on Virginia in the Senate. She fears too much to see her father and brother in the mirror to dissolve the Senate. But I fear it merely emboldens the covetous nature in the mortals of weaker substance. Do you think he holds regard or any respect for the Senate? Do you think he even holds regard or respect for her position as sovereign? Obviously, as his wife, but. I don't think he holds respect for anyone unless they've earned it explicitly. Okay. I think he, re- I think he respects 
the Senate itself, the entity, the Senate, but not the individual members. Does that make sense? Okay. Sure. I yeah. Know. I don't know. There's there's some complication to that one. But trying to boil down like what I think he generally believes, I think that's kind of where I'd put put him. Okay. All right. What do you think about uh, his read on Virginia and her position as the sovereign? There's a quote in here where he says, I, I trust, I, trust I don't trust I my don't. sovereign. I trust my wife. Yeah. Right. So I think that yep. says everything we need to know. He, okay. he, res- he respects her as a person. He doesn't respect her, the position that she's put in and the choices that she has to make in order to appease the rest of the Senate, the politics of compromise. All right. I, d- I dig that as an explanation. I think that that's a great, great read, especially pulling in kind of that other quote for sure. So mm-hmm. with that, we, uh, we move into chapter two, Lysander, Anihilo, which is, is so interesting because you'd feel like it would be Anihilo, but I heard it said as Anihilo and I was like, oh yeah. All right. I'm wrong. Good call. Idiot. But yeah, me dumb, me, me big <laughs> dumb sometime. <laughs> uh, Lysander's regard for Diomedes in the immediate situation, I think, feels like very high praise. And all told, the the man, Diomedes himself, is very respectable. It's it's kind of interesting, again, that he doesn't revel over kind of the immolation of the Ash Lord. He's not clapping his hands, but instead comes to offer respect. What do you think of what do you think this peculiar man from the Rim might do in the coming pages? More than anything, I think Diomedes and Lysander as a pair will be a very formidable group group uh couple, gang i guess gang couple. gang we'll go with <laughs> gang they're a biker gang now um but as lysander says he kind of lacks some more of the complicated understandings of how the people of the core operate and what pitfalls to look for so if lysander can kind of bolster that and Diomedes can shine where he shines. Like they, they're going to basically cover. They're going to be better than an iron gold together than each of them are separately. I think hmm. like they, they're going to be a very, very strong pairing. All right. I, I dig, I dig that view because I think that they do make a very, um, I, I would, I would go so far as to say kind of like an odd couple, but they yeah, also for sure. Because of that, I think that they they complement each other in unexpected ways. I agree. So this this feels feels very poignantly written. Lysander is looking at Seraphina and kind of discussing this, and I, I I found it particularly funny on this read, so I wanted to to read it out loud. But my attraction still persists. Credit ten years separation from my own species, I suppose. Either that, or I've discovered a latent pre- <laughs> predisposition for wild things, and shall be doomed for my life by my taste in precocious women. And all I have to say is eep. <laughs> She's still a child and still to catch a predatoring him. But yes, this is uh this is a really really intriguing passage. I'm I'm really curious to see how this will grow or develop over time. Um 
Are we at this point? Are we just ignoring the fact that she's sixteen? The she's got to be like sixteen, seventeen. Well, yeah. I'm going. I'm going with the original. I'm going with Morningstar yeah, definition. So she's sixteen. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe she turned seventeen. Jailbait. Yeah. Jailbait. Jail, right there. Jailbait. <laughs> oh, jeez. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely. Come on, Lysander. Like, I guess we, I think we, I think we talked about this previously, but like, don't know, don't know what core, what gold standards are. Don't know what any of that looks like. Don't know if Cassius even like told him any sort of foundational rules. But yeah, dude, like, what are you doing? Mm. It's like I want to have iron golds with you, baby. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> She's like, dude, I'm 16 and I fucking hate you. <laughs> Something like that, you know. Cool. I'm going to go to algebra. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, speaking of, was it in the last section that uh, th- they were talking about math on the hall? Uh, or is that the later section? I think it is the last section. No, what, no, it's a later what? section when they're when they're sitting up think they're talking they talk about math here yeah okay okay I, that i i just have to flash back here for everyone else so pj and our friend natalie uh will very frequently when intoxicated do <laughs> what, what exactly is it called what, what do you guys call okay. it so it, it was our tradition for our new year's parties and we didn't get to do it last year because natalie was pregnant which now she's not she has a very healthy baby which is growing so much that I don't think I consider him a baby anymore. He's very cute and very nice, very nice boy. But every New Year's we would do what's called drink drink to forget math. (laughs) So uh, she was a math major for undergrad, I believe, right? Yeah. Economics. But I thought thought economics was was a minor in math. I thought it was math major, economics master. Regardless, very good at math. Either way. Um, lots of math. And I'm physics with a math minor. So we would do drinking to forget math, and we would put up a math problem on a whiteboard. And uh, one that was difficult, but we could both do without a calculator, just at any point. Like, we could just do it. And then we would drink. And every couple hours, we would, like, check in with each other and see, like, can you still do this math problem? And uh, that was kind of the entire point was to uh, keep drinking until we couldn't do math anymore. <laughs> so, um, Fun fact, it looks like she actually has degrees in a bachelor's degree in both economics and mathematics. Okay, so it was a double. And then a master's right. in econ as well. Yep. Okay. That yep. makes that makes sense. Yes. I knew she was, I, I, I could have sworn she was a major in math. So yep. that makes sense. So that checks out. But yeah, so that, that scene with Orion reminded me of her like torture, be tortured to forget math kind of thing. And she still remembers math. So anyway. Yeah. She's behind in the episodes right now. So uh, in what, like a few months when you get here. Hi, Natalie. <laughs> true. True. I think she's still reading Golden Sun. She is. Yep. Yeah. So <clears throat> anyway. Diomedes makes mention that his father used to say 
that anyone who is interesting could be described in two words. And so he asks Lysander for the impressions, uh, what, what impression he could get of Atalantia from those two words. And he says, velvet buzzsaw. And I think that that's a fantastic one. And the imagery he kind of pour, pours forth is even better. We're, we're kind of finally getting impressions of this final fury that we've been hearing out for an entire book now. What do you think of her? What do you think of those words as a descriptor? Oh man, those words as a descriptor are fucking brutal. Like it, it's it's such a visceral description of something so elegant and elegant and refined, I guess are not the best way to describe velvet now. Like velvet is kind of dated and uh it's often dirty and just kind of gross. But velvet in its heyday and new velvet is luxurious and elegant and uh, pairing that with a buzzsaw. Like I, I want to meet this person and I want to <laughs> never, ever step foot in a room with this person at the same very, at the same time, you know? <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That's uh that's an interesting read. I'm glad glad we got to get that out of you for sure it's um mm-hmm. yeah yeah hmm. okay all right we also get kind of an interesting dump of information right at the end of this chapter that of what atalantia sees in lysander as his kind of use both the mind's eye and her desire to kind of discover how it works as well as his relationship with gil Rostes, the master maker of heliopolis that uh darrow already spoke about and we, we learn even more about a little bit later here yeah, um, information dump. The, the this sort of style of information dump hasn't happened in a while, but it's something that Pierce Brown really does well. He does it very, very well. This these dense little nuggets that he just tucks in to different chapters. Um, I, I feel like he really didn't do that so much the last book. But he did it a lot, at least in the first couple books, especially Golden Sun, I feel like. I feel like this was like a common thing in Golden Sun. But that's just, (laughs) I can't think of specifics and it's just kind of going off of feeling that I have like while I was reading. But I, I love this whenever he does it. No, I, I think you're kind of right. The only times that I can think that something similar was kind of employed is all of the different mentions of Deep Grave that happened earlier, where we didn't really know what Deep Grave was or why that why that existed or what, what its purpose served immediately. But we did have an understanding that it was kind of important in a quick bit, quick bite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it is more prevalent in the original trilogy for sure so far the very least mm-hmm. even even the grief da- grief dave deep grave stuff even that stuff it, it's it's less dense this is so much information packed into one paragraph whereas the deep grave stuff was a lot more spread out and it was there was an air of mystery around it and we got information slowly over time until we finally figured out exactly what it was like we, we got references to it, but this is, I, I feel like this is something completely different where it's a whole lot of information and implications, 
all at once. That's, and then we'll sort through it later. That's a really interesting point. I, I kind of want to bring this up since we're, we're talking about this also in reflection of the older books. One of the things that I think is really interesting about the switches with, with POVs between the original trilogy and adding in the POVs in the second trilogy is that I wonder if all of the... The original trilogy was obviously written mostly linearly as far as the story goes because you've got one POV that you're dragging through. I feel like the first or excuse me i feel like iron gold feels as though it was also written linearly while hopping through perspectives not as though ephraim's perspective was written all at once and then joined with lyria's not like he wrote all of ephraim's line and then he went to lyria and then he went to darrow and then he went to um who am i missing there Dara, lysander um not like all of those were written in complete isolation of each other but as though he was working his way linearly through the story this feels more like it was linearly writing his way through the characters almost the reason i say that is only because deep grave is referenced by almost every not almost every character but it's referenced by both darrow and ephraim within kind of the same part and so that makes me think that he wants to put it on our minds before we know exactly what it is even providing multiple perspectives on what deep grave is through multiple eyes but this doesn't have that same twist like we're not talking about the mind's eye from darrow's perspective you know that's my comparison yeah yeah Yeah, that makes sense random but that's a thought Mm -hmm. so diomedes final words of the chapter i think here are fantastic uh to meet atalantia conditionally to see my uncle again certainly and He's he's talking about what he's afraid of here, and it's just <laughs> again <laughs> we we know that like Atalantia is a terrifying force, and we've actually seen the results of those choices and actions because in reality she was pulling the strings for all of Iron Gold, um, but we we don't know about Atlas. <laughs> yeah, it sounds worse and worse every step of the way on this one, as far as like meeting atlas goes <laughs> mm-hmm. he does not sound like a cool dude in general yeah uh-oh uh-oh oh, no oh uh-oh uh- so oh any other thoughts on this chapter oh 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 no so chapter three darrow storm god kate we're, we're introduced right off the bat to Cadis harnassus what do you make of this uh interesting orange <sighs> i am interested in him he is so fucking cool right off the back right off the bat jesus not back um <laughs> right off the bat he's i i don't know i i don't know what to think of him but i i want more I really want more of him. I like the uh, the reference of old Tokyo. I know we've we've had a little bit of a touch on it, but not not much. So I'm I'm interested to see if we can learn more about it. Like I, I think we know about old Tokyo. I think it's just Tokyo to us, but to learn what made it old Tokyo as opposed to just fucking Tokyo. I don't know. A, that's a fair point i i think i think it's been kind of described a little bit previously 
and kind of the way that I, I think about it, and I think it kind of goes in conjunction with the way that I think, I feel like it's, someone definitely correct me if you remember looking at any number of people who send me messages about things that I get just slightly wrong. Please let me know if I get this wrong. But it, I, I think it's Ephraim who mentions uh, old Tokyo on Earth, or maybe it's even back in Morningstar, Darrow references that the Storm Knight was from old Tokyo. Actually, that'd be Golden Sun. Um, the Storm Knight at the time was from old Tokyo. And it it reminds me, it kind of just makes me think about like our modern day Tokyo, if it had survived the conquering, like the city itself. Um, but now it's like a weird old remnant of humanity that's kind of long gone, but obviously people have re-inhabited over time. That's kind of what I think of, if that makes okay. sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I personally like as well how Darrow's two imperators are called immovable objects and kind of square off against each other here uh, as as Orion and Harnasses kind of confront each other around the sort of plans. I, I think that it's a, a fascinating little little tiff they get in. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, they're 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 pretty hot headed, I think, both of them. It's like Darrow keeps a bunch of hotheads around. You know, you yeah, got like who, Severo. Who the fuck is this guy, Darrow? Like, <laughs> why is he attracting such ridiculous people? He's also kind of a hothead himself, you know? What? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no way. This hell diver? Nuh-uh. Couldn't be. Not my Darrow. <laughs> <laughs> we... We also get our second orange of the chapter here, Gilrastes, a cruel and severe orange who seems to have a bit of a drug habit. Uh, he's <laughs> a, a bit, he's, a bit, just just a bit. Um, he's a creative architect and one that reminds me of kind of like a populist version of Howard Rourke from The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Um, all that to say, like, he's basically very kind of idealized and self-obsessed and you know, the thing that I would say is that he does care a lot about people, and that's the biggest division between Howard Rourke and, or mm-hmm. Howard Rourke and Gil Rostes as characters. Uh, but otherwise, I feel like they have very similar kind of attitudes right off the bat. What do you what do you see? What do you think? Well, if that if, if that's the case, then the Ayn Rand uh, references are all over the place in this book, with Atlas being one of the main villains. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> you know? I that's huh <laughs> I'm trying to actually think if there's any like good I also don't want to anti-spoiler this I don't want to say that's don't, not don't a say thing. anything just think about it later yeah I don't think it's a thing but okay. I'm gonna think about it more now but yeah uh yeah fair fair point I know Pierce mm-hmm. doesn't really like Ayn Rand but that doesn't mean you don't read something and like pull bits you like out of it even if it's bad arguably i mean you can still use someone you don't like as the fucking villain you know yeah true i mean like the jackal exists right well he doesn't he's dead now but well i i am firmly in belief that pierce brown loves the character of the jackal on a personal level and uh that is who he strives to be as a person hmm it's a fair point. <laughs> Him and Apollonius. Yep. Yep. He's, <laughs> he just took two different parts of his own personality and like split them and made two wonderful, lovely characters out of them. Fair enough. 
<laughs> with with that, we get our first description of the storm gods, which are these huge, ancient mechanical creations designed to shape the weather for the planet in combination with the Lovelock engines and mass drivers kind of terraforming the whole thing and making it habitable for people. I, I think that it's it's just a short little section, but it's fascinating stuff. What do you, what do you make of uh, the storm gods, the engines, and what do you think Darrow is planning with them? Ooh, I'm really not sure yet, but I am pretty positive it's going to be some sort of jerry-rigged, uh, not weapon, but um, tool of war, like the the Rising did with the cl- claw drills to help him escape from the, uh, the jackal's custody. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's going to be sort of a unique um, use use case and i actually have this as one of my predictions i think right i put it down as a prediction so i'll I'll kind of spoil spoil what i'm thinking but i think those those engines are going to be used to induce a tidal wave and the uh operation tartar sauce people are going to be uh in, in, <laughs> in fixed up star shells or something that uh, allow them to breathe and operate and walk freely underwater. So they're basically going to just crash, crash a tidal wave on top of an army and then beat the shit out of them while the, while the water's all still there. Wow. That's a fascinating prediction, PJ. Well, they, they put the engines in the water. What are you going to do from the water? I don't know. Make a tidal wave. That's a fair. It's a fair point. Mm-hmm. I, I'm. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, well, it's going to be addressed, so I can't. You know. Good. Good stuff. I actually really like that idea. I think that's fascinating. It's very cinematic. Like that's a very. It's a great idea. Like Darrow's going to be body surfing. <laughs> like. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Body surfing Darrow. <laughs> can't can't imagine anything different he's got a little boogie board it's got his pulse armor on it mm-hmm. so it's good good stuff uh with yeah. that chapter four <laughs> <laughs> uh move into chapter four which is lysander once again and it's ajax son of aja and a terrifying concept <laughs> <laughs> Aja mm-hmm. has a son, you know, and we we saw him in action earlier. He's able to. He's not as he's not as good as Lorne is, but he is as fast as Lorne is. Three hundred fifty pounds of muscle, and just Jesus fuck, what the fuck is this dude? Yeah, just huge Do you man. Think anyway, the that's Golds just have an American football league. <laughs> I, I doubt it, and it. If they did, what would the size of their linebackers be? Like 500 pounds. That's on the low side, man. It's got to be on the low side. Like, the, I, bet they get, I bet they get their, like, one-off 750, like, three-quarter <laughs> <Tank>. tons. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> when you put it that way, I'm a little upset. <laughs> 
but uh, what do you, what do you make of Lysander's political musings throughout the session section discussing all the discussing all the conflicting ideals of the Rim and pondering what might happen to him at the end of all, all of this at the hands of Atalantia? I I just kind of hope this line of writing kind of gets kept up. I I enjoy his sections in this first chunk so much. I love the depth of the the politics that go on and just the the amount of lore that comes through naturally through his talking it, it's super super cool so i ju- i just want more of it is really my my thoughts on the political musings is give me more more please more more, more please that's that's fair that's fair in in both of the chapters lysander is pretty horny to put it lightly uh the, the way that he talks be stepping off that seraphina shit <laughs> chris the, hansen's the way- gonna come around that corner at any second <laughs> he really is oh my god i can't i i can't help but imagine like chris hansen and a camera crew, crew coming around a corner in the middle of the end <laughs> interrupting just like in in lysander's chest (laughs) back up and look up in order to see him oh shit (laughs) it's oh no yeah (laughs) fuck oh my god but the way the way that he talks about calendora in this kind of glowing regard as as a sort of like familial kind of auntish figure you know like that's kind of the way that he, he thinks and talks that makes about it worse <laughs> it does make it worse i'm not saying it makes it better dan man definitely not saying it makes it better as a man i John think of Snow. her <laughs> I, as a man i think of her differently and i all i have to say is like bro you are a total horn dog like I, <laughs> yeah yeah uh, <laughs> But uh, all told, though, his <laughs> description of scenes and the world is is really interesting and a different way to present our a- enemy, Atalantia. What do you make of his return to his family of old between Calendora, Ajax, and kind of Lysander's overall horniness? Well, I mean, his overall horniness needs to be addressed, and he needs to find an outlet that's not with an underage girl. So, <laughs> I mean, if it's an aunt, sure, like that is better. <laughs> Calendora is not actually his aunt, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but with 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 Ajax, there was a pretty interesting dynamic through the whole thing. I can't, um, <laughs> I can't stop laughing. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Continue with the Ajax thought. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ajax through the through the whole introduction is super like untrusting and calloused but immediately when lysander answers all the questions and goes through the trials and everything and ajax is satisfied with that he becomes this super warm jovial almost santa claus like (laughs) man um it it was almost like that entire like questioning period of Lysander being there was completely ignored and forgotten, and it was as if his old friend walked into his house hmm. unannounced, randomly. 
He's like, hey, my my dear friend Lysander. Like, it, it was like he completely sectioned off that part and ignored that it had happened and then greeted him as if this was the instant that he had first seen him in a decade. It was really kind of cool in that respect. It, I I agree with you. I think that that is actually really interesting. I think it makes Ajax even more of a sociopath. But yes. Oh yeah. But that also makes it very way. interesting. Right. <laughs> no uh no doubt, no doubt. Also like just adding into that, Ajax and Diomedes being cousins is is one of such like distant relation in a way. Like they are cousins, sure, but they're I, I love the way that Lysander thinks about it. The, their familial ties are nothing but the blood of conquerors, really. And they themselves could not be further apart in every other way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that. It as far as family goes in this show, show, Jesus, book, book series. Um I don't know why I said show. I have no idea. I don't think of it as a show. Anyway, as far as family goes, it it's not as close as it seems to us, you know? Mm-hmm. And they they make note of the familial ties because that's important to them, but the actual family isn't. So mm-hmm. it, it's more just a, a function of the amount of time they pour into studying families and studying the important gold families that okay. makes it makes them aware of who's technically related to one another, but they, they don't seem to be family, quote unquote, in the uh, traditional terms. Sure. So, yeah. I, I think, uh, is it in this section, um, or is it later? I, I'm not sure where, where they mentioned that Ajax was kind of born out of a loveless relationship between Aja and, uh, one of the Ra's. I think it is this section. It is this section. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's kind of like, it's kind of cool to see the joining of houses, to create just monster gladiators. Um, obviously there's a lot more to it to the more to it than that with like the politics and the power structures of the society and all of that coming into play, but adding in just the genetic monsters that come out is mm-hmm. fucking cool. Well, and we do know that he's the son of Atlas. So it's Atlas and Aja, this kid. It is Atlas. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's Atlas. Which just adds to the absolute terrifying nature of this child. Yeah, he's a, he's a fucking crazy person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh. That's uh, as much as I can really say at the moment. He's, he's just a fucking crazy person. <laughs> With, without a doubt. I, I could not agree more. 
I and just to like lean into that even I keep doing this for these for kind of the the points but like the way that the insults are flung back and forth between Diomedes and Ajax is just wonderful Diomedes almost kind of like swats his cousin away like a crude fly and then fucking Ajax or Diomedes bends Ajax's will and takes it off because they're both the storm knight he's pissing on his cloak right there and <laughs> it it becomes clear again how far away from the rim we've gone just to arrive back at the core golds and their mischief and chicanery once again ah uh, family <laughs> have they met before um i don't think so i think that's kind of the context of like him saying cousin ah uh, like you're that cousin okay this is some this is some aggressive aggressive joking around if they haven't met before yeah a- ajax and lysander are of a similar age i want to say ajax is like 23 and lysander's like 21 maybe 20 like i think well i think with the passage of time the little I bit of passage much of time, time, time passed uh in iron yeah. gold I, I think it was like a couple months uh he's between 20 and 21 regardless yeah, but yeah i mean there. they're they're close in age old yeah. old enough where he's kind of like an older brother that's fair yeah but yeah i yeah. would you would you make of kind of the insults and the way that that kind of escalates i, I thought it was hilarious <laughs> like and it, i i if they had known each other better and this was like just getting back to hanging out with my cousins, I think it'd be really fucking funny, but these are not, these are not jokes to be made with people you've never met before. So I think it's a lot (laughs) more hostile than it comes across as. So I'm curious to see what sort of, uh, what sort of repercussions are going to happen? I um can't help but agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's 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 a whole lot. I mean, between the two of them, as far as that goes. So the protocol of the dancing mask, I think, is one is fat that is fascinating. It was first mentioned in this first chapter with Lysander earlier on in the book, but it really kind of come. We kind of understand that it wasn't just like a. It, it was capitalized in the initial Lysander chapter, and it's kind of like, why is that capitalized? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, Octavia in a flashback. Uh, and now we kind of get an understanding of like, oh, the dancing mask is like a social or political uh, codification of tactics. And it reminds me of what most people would consider like Machiavellian. You know, like it, it feels of a similar vein. We don't get enough description of it yet, but it, it's super interesting. Yeah, all the small ceremonial things within gold culture is super, super interesting to me. Um, but it, it at the same time, it increases the depth that this whole book series has. So Pierce Brown does a does a wonderful job of just deepening the the lore in in kind of throwaway, semi insignificant ways. But it's what makes things makes things real, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it builds out the world. It's great. It's great world building in just small doses. And it's like, oh well, Lysander knows this, and Daryl would never talk about this because he doesn't know court. He doesn't know courtly behavior at all. You know, if we had a Mustanger Virginia perspective, 
back in the original trilogy, maybe we would have heard of this and we'd have understanding, but we would never learn this from Darrow. Right. Exactly. Cool. Anything else on Lysander for the week? Mm, no, but I, I guess just kind of leave it off. I am so much more engaged with, with these chapters or this chapter. Is it just one with Lysander? No, I think it's two. two. Yeah, I think it's two. But these chapters with Lysander are so much more engaging to me than the entire previous book. So that's why I'm super excited. I don't know. I don't know if it's like actually written differently or if it's just me being in a really strange mood this week and like super jacked for this book. But for whatever reason, they're they're really this whole book is latching on harder than the previous book did. Hey, and you know what? That's that's fair. I think we kind of discussed the the meta conversation that surrounds Iron Gold a little bit, which is that the switching of POVs kind of feels like a harsh one. And so now we've done all the setup work. We've we've had our red rising. Now we get to have kind of and I'm not setting this as an expectation for you, but in the same way that Red Rising has Golden Sun to follow it up, we now have done all the setup work and now we get to kind of do the payoff to some degree. Okay. Yeah. If that That's makes fair. sense. So because you've had all this time with his character, all of a sudden now you care about him and now we can proceed, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. With that, chapter five, Darrow, final chapter of the week to discuss Voyager Cloak. Right off the bat, Darrow sets the stage for the coming conflict by stating, this is our Thermopylae, and stating that there will be no escape. They kind of define the line, and it's the only chance that they have at victory is to define the engagement not waiting it out, not attacking, not staying on defense, but to pick where their battle is going to happen and how it is going to happen. All right. So how many times do I have to say this? (laughs) I fucking love this book already, man. Like this, this whole, this whole chapter just, it's energetic, man. I, I'm excited. I'm so excited. This is just amping me up more. Like I, I don't have anything of substance to like add to that, and I know it doesn't mean anything to say. Like, this is get this is getting me excited, but it is, and uh, I'm 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 just I'm. Please, yep. can we do this like every day instead of every week? <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to torture, buddy. <laughs> um. That yeah. is that is really yeah. funny though. I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. I you know, it's it's worth it's worth noting, of course, we talked about this with Hale Reaper, we've talked about it with Howler Pod, we talked about it with every guest, and everyone's been like, I can't believe you're so patient to go through these. And I was like, I don't think PJ's gonna be very patient with me in Dark Age. <laughs> like I don't, I don't think he's gonna be able to hold it together <laughs> for for the the weeks ish between reading. And uh yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's I hate um you. <laughs> it's certainly something and I I just want to point out something for those who might not know uh Thermopylae very famous battle Spartans standing against the Persians lost it's the basis of the 300 um it ended up being it was a lot more than 300 actual people were there but just so you know, that's kind of the battle. If you don't know what that is, go ahead, look it up. It's it's great. It's a great little bit of history for those who don't know. 
Yes. So with yes. that, Darrow explains the elaborate bait and switch he's been pull he's pulling on the Ash Legions to draw them in so they can win a victory. But the people in the room here are actually a part of another strategy. Operation Tartarus. Tartar sauce. <laughs> I just want to know what the fuck it is. Like they're they're stringing this in front of us. Like I I just want to know. I just want to know what the fucking plan is. Yeah. Until I know otherwise, it, it is it is the uh, tidal wave. <laughs> fair enough. It's a it's a fair point. And he, we're definitely being strung along by Darrow in these moments as he like cuts away be- between different you know different bits that we get to highlight. He he like walks out of the room and whatnot. It's uh it's interesting. Mm-hmm. So Harnassus gets really angry at Darrow after a quick exchange and says, "You know why I prefer Severo to you? He may burn hot, but you go cold. There's no talking to you when you're like this. You're inhuman. You're a god emperor. What do you make of our dear warlord Darrow and his intentions to use the storm gods? How about his use of the howlers to force Harnassus into submission?" fuck what that's a fucking turn that that is a fucking turn for darrow i i really didn't see that coming but it kind of solidifies the change in character that we've seen darrow kind of going through the harder exterior the more just the more brutal he's he's becoming more and more brutal and more and more of a straight-up warlord verging on dictator which is scary, but compelling, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the reality is that Harnassus isn't entirely wrong, right? Like, No, he's completely right. Right. I think he's stretching it a little bit with the you are a god emperor, like he's, but he's definitely like, you're acting like a tyrant, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's effectively the same thing. I, I see that as the same it, that meaning the same thing god emperor gives me weird 40k vibes so i don't like that personally but yeah i understand yeah functionally it's the same i i saw it as hyperbole yeah yeah, yeah. definitely i i totally understand yeah it's i mean, it's just this sort of military commander he's like you technically speaking we shouldn't be listening to you at all you're you're a criminal you're a bloody tyrant like there's yeah man i mean dude is described as hot-headed and in all honesty also the description of uh of harnassus gives me big dwarf vibes in the way that he's kind of short he's got this like mushroom like face or to face that you know it's kind of yeah, he's got a weird kind of stoutish description. Bulbous um, drinking nose, I think was yes. this, the description. What the fuck does that mean? I, I dwarf to me. <laughs> what, what is a drinking nose? Uh so it's 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 a known thing that if you drink a ton, your nose actually gets fatter, like the end of your nose and redder. Interesting. Yeah. Don't know. I don't remember the exact reason why, but or. And I'm not, I, you know, this, it's one of those things where it's like, is that an old wives tale? But I think it's real. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, it's, it's interesting enough that it's used to describe the character here. So, mm-hmm. 
the the moment of planning, of course, the Harnassus and with Operation Tartarus is interrupted and Darrow kind of bursts forth into this action mode, planning for the coming conflict. He sends Harnassus to Tyche to defend interests and resupply troops. Orion is sent to uh, to the ocean with the storm gods with the final one to be delivered out there. And Orion and Darrow share this exchange where he goes from Vanguard to Vale Sister. And this moment of war is kind of pinned by a quiet moment of contemplation between the two of them. And it's just, it's lovely. It is. It's touching. It really kind of shows the connection that the two of them have built together. And I I think it's, I don't think it's in this section specifically, but I think it's before he rescues her, Mm -hmm. where he talks about how, and remembers about, how they met and when he took that took the packs and made her captain of the ship like they've been they've been very very close and confidence of one another since then so just kind of seeing seeing their quiet private um interactions is is heartwarming heartwarming for the little warlord that we're seeing (laughs) yeah i mean i I only laugh because you you said little warlord and i think that i would even go so far as to say little warlords um yeah (laughs) both of them but yeah it's it is it is a heartwarming moment because it was one of of two people who were enslaved by the society and getting to share kind of this this liberation originally the liberation you know, Ryan didn't necessarily understand that he was a he was a red, not a gold. But it it's obviously become a a component of of their relationship to some degree, to kind of an understanding. Entirely, yeah, yeah. So after they all take off and everything like that, Darrow reveals to Rona a kill switch upon her in- inquisition. She finds out about it because she can read Darrow like a book, as you know, her, his niece and. It's one that can be pulled if you were to die in the battlefield to cut off the storm gods if it's absolutely necessary before he has to run off in his squadron to join Alexander near the wastes of the Ladon. What do you make of the kill switch and what do you think's next? I think the kill switch itself is kind of important um, and, and something that Darrow completely overlooked. So on, on a kind of whim... When it was mentioned, Rona, Rona gets gets the information, but this is something that he would usually probably share with uh, with Severo. You know, like he wouldn't normally yeah. just have this information alone; it'd be shared between the two of them, and probably nobody else. But at least there's somebody that it. it if something bad goes down with one of them, the other knows all of the secret things that are important. Right, right. I, I would even go so far as to say, and I'm I'm sorry I didn't mention this as a question, but sort of the lament of Severo being gone is felt really it's it's a really strong moment throughout this entire section. You can't but help silently but feel, so, you know. Darrow well, Darrow doesn't say it out loud, but he does say it to himself a lot. He is yeah. reflecting on, you know, sort of the the only people who can be as violent as Atlas are Severo and I. 
And he's also like, I miss Severo. This would be what Severo is doing. And I think this is you're you're pointing out an excellent example that Dara doesn't point out is that Rona being here to reveal this is information that definitely would have been shared with Severo. This backup plan would have been in Severo's hands. Right. Completely. So, yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic read. Oh, man. Well, that's it. That's it for the week. Any any other comments? Any other thoughts on this uh, section? No, I guess not. But now I get to read the next section, which makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, fair. Good good point. It's a, it's a good time. With that, we, uh, we move into PJ's predictions. So you've got a couple to talk about. We are still sourcing crowd predictions for PJ or questions that you want to ask PJ. Uh, either in our final episode, if you want to wait until he's completely done or for additional episodes in the future, if you want to ask him kind of a, a semi leading question or predicting question, get, send them to me. You can send them to me via discord. You can send them to me via the email. Um, I just ask that you avoid spoilers in any case, well, just in case so PJ it, sees it, them. If there are spoilers for like in, within your question. Um, that cross can kind of decipher or whatever, or any sort of communication that you put forward with us that has a spoiler, please just put spoiler in caps at the front of your message. And then I, I will read that and won't read farther and cross will read it. We're so, fairly disciplined at this point. So we are pretty disciplined. Most of the time it's crossland interacting with, uh, with stuff like that anyway. But just in case, that's that's good practice. So that's that's helpful, but without a doubt. Um, yeah. So with that, let's get into your predictions for this week. Yes. So do Ajax and Diomedes actually fight potentially in the bleeding place? And I you really said. desperately want to say yes. I so badly <laughs> want to, that to happen. But I think no. I think they uh I think they'll get pretty pretty intensely um it's going to come across as like ribbing like ribbing each other as 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 close cousins might do but it's going to be a little bit more hostile than that especially because they're not actually close uh-huh. but I I don't think it'll actually boil over I don't know all right. Next one. What is Operation Tartar Sauce? Which I mentioned before. Um, and the engines will be used to create a tidal wave in which the forces will ride into battle. They will they will body surf into battle in like rigged out star shells made for underwater battling. Which, I don't know. We want a beach episode. That's what I want. <laughs> And the final one that I put, because I couldn't think of anything else, can we trust anyone? And the answer is no. Shit's going sideways as it always does. Shit begets shit begets shit. <laughs> that's great. Love that. So that's that's what I've got. All right. Fun. So with that, next week we are going to be reading through chapter 11. So that'll be until page 92 in the hardcover, 6 through 11. So about uh, about 51 pages of joy for you, PJ. Yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. I'll probably read it like tonight or tomorrow. 
Brooklyn. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I'm in the zone this week, so I think I'm probably going to do notes tomorrow. That's my plan since I have the day off. All right, perfect. Yeah, it's the game plan. Sounds so good. that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, of course, to our producers Tim and Andrew for helping us keep the show's lights on. Also, check out our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites. All of our socials in one convenient place. Yeah, and it's it's worth noting. Big shout out to uh, to Tim for getting that all together. We talked about it in the last episode, but the the links it's, is awesome. So uh, with that, make sure if you're if you aren't subscribed, definitely subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And thank you so much for the support. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.